The following is a presentation of the Boston Podcast Network. Podcasting is a great way for professionals to tell their story. Find out how you can get started at pod617.com. Hi, this is Harry Margolis, and welcome to the Ask Harry podcast, where we answer your estate planning questions and hear from experts in the field. In this episode, I am continuing my conversation with Larry Froelich about how seniors can protect themselves from financial risk. Larry recently retired from the University of Pittsburgh Law School, where he was a professor of estate planning and elder law, and he has been writing and speaking most recently about these issues of financial risk for seniors. In the last episode, we talked about powers of attorney, and today we're getting into revocable trust and annuities. Larry, thank you very much for coming back to our to the Ask Harry podcast. And uh, I wanted to um, uh, follow up. I know we talked last time about durable powers of attorney and getting our investments and our distributions into a fixed scheme so we uh, don't have to make a lot of decisions when, when we get older. And uh, I know you, you've also been thinking about uh, revocable trusts, and uh, I was wondering if, there's, if that would be a good mechanism also for getting ourselves, uh, protecting ourselves from ourselves in the future. Indeed. Revocable, revocable trusts uh, are a underused but very, very valuable tool for people who are aging who want to make sure their financial affairs will always be taken care of by people they can trust, uh, trust both in terms of not stealing money from them, but also trust just in their financial acumen, people who really understand what to do with the money. Uh, a revocable trust is a very simple document. Uh, any lawyer, can, uh, any good elder law attorney can help you prepare it. It's a document that says, I'm putting my money into a trust, and you can imagine the trust like a big bucket. You put your money in the bucket, and it's your assets, your savings, your, you know, your checking. Generally, you would put your savings, not your IRA rollover from your 401k. You don't want to put that IRA in a trust. It complicates things. But you can put your other money into a trust. And perhaps your house, but that depends upon a lot of circumstances that we won't get into. But an elder law attorney could talk to you about why you might and might not want to put a house into a trust. But you put your other money in trust, and you name trustees, and those trustees, surprisingly, are you and your spouse. And you go on just as before. You get all the income from the trust. You have total control over the assets. The government treats you as if you own the, the, those assets in the trust. So any money the trust produces, that income is taxed you just like your normal income. So it's essentially a transparent uh, entity that has no effect on your life. But if you become disabled and can't handle your financial affairs, and that could happen because, like my father, who had a stroke, which took away his ability to speak well and I think really to comprehend what was going on. Or you get dementia, so you're not mentally capable of handling affairs. What happens? Well, you can resign as trustee, or, and when you resign as trustee, I'm going to say you and, uh, as mm-hmm. if it was a single person, but if it's you and your spouse, mm-hmm. you can resign and you, are repla- you will be replaced by whoever you named as what's called the successor trustee. So if I resign from my trust, my trust will say, if I cease to be trustee, my son, Corey, will become the trustee in my place, all right? Or I 
could say, if I cease to be trustee, my son, Corey, and my daughter, Winifred, will become my trustee. So both children are involved. Why? Well, this now allows my two children, assuming I'm now a widow, my wife has died, this allows my two children to handle my financial affairs of the money that's inside the trust. So if I have a fair amount of savings and bonds or stocks or mutual funds, now Corey and Winifred can go to my financial advisor and say, let's examine what my dad had, how is he using the money, and how much does he need so he can continue to live in a good lifestyle. For example, maybe I've had, I have some dementia and I'm now living in an assisted living unit where they're taking care of me. But, you, it's, you know, there's $4,000 a month bill that has to be paid. My kids can take money out of the trust if necessary to help pay for that. Or they can augment my Social Security check to make up you know, the shortfall between my Social Security and the 4000 I've got to pay every month. Why is that better than a power of attorney? Well, first of all, it's much easier to have more than one person be the trustee. And, mm-hmm. in fact, in most cases, you, you will have more than one person be the trustee. Power of attorney, you only want one person, right, Harry, to be the power agent under a power of attorney in, in, most, in almost all cases? Well, we actually, we actually often appoint two um, so they can share the burden or just in case one, the first person isn't available at, at the, at the right. time. Okay. Right, uh, okay. It depends a little on uh, the state. Around mm-hmm. where I am, that's, uh, that's unusual. Uh-huh, interesting. Uh, it's because it's, it's, it, it's getting third parties, the bank, yeah. the Medicare, whoever, to, to respond to two agents. And I think if you can get two agents and people will deal with that, that's great. Uh, but it's, it's really easy to have two or even three agents. And many people have two or three children and they want, excuse me, not agents, two or three trustees, mm-hmm. two or three trustees. So you get multiple people involved. And other entities, particularly banks, are very comfortable dealing with trustees all the trustee has to do is come in and show them the document, say, here, here I am named as the successor trustee. Here's a letter from my father when he resigned as trustee, so now you know I'm the trustee, and let's sit down and talk about what to do with this money in the savings account that my father let build up. We really need to invest that money more mm-hmm. aggressively, or at, least in, or at least in good paying bonds. Yeah. The other advantage of trustees is there's an awful lot of law, hundreds of years of law, dealing with the rights and powers of trustees and what they can and can't do and what one trustee can do versus another trustee. Very well settled. Agents under power of attorney, not so much so. There's still a lot of litigation as to what an agent can and cannot do. Even If you have two agents, can do they always have to agree uh, if not, what kind of what can things can the single agent do, et cetera, et cetera? Mm-hmm. There are just some issues there. Yeah. Lawyers will tell you that trusts and trustees are much less litigious, much less litigation, many fewer lawsuits because people know what the law is. Mm-hmm. The next thing about trustees that I really like is they watch over each other. Every trustee has a responsibility. responsibility to keep the other trustee informed upon what they're doing. In fact, they can't act solely. They always have to, the two or three of them always have to agree to whatever's being done. There can be some problems with an agent under a power of attorney. Who has the right to know what that agent does, correct? Right. It's not clear. 
ideally an agent, for example, if I name my daughter Winifred, my agent, and my son Corey wanted to know, well, what are you doing with dad's money? She would tell him, but she may not have to under state mm-hmm. law. That's right. And you'd be surprised that, the, and I'm sure you've seen this, it, family squabbles, disputes, even lawsuits over these agents and what they're doing or not doing and what they have to tell other people. Trustees, there's not much squabbling. The law is very settled. So if, if one trustee wants to do something, the lawyer can say, I'm sorry, it's very settled here. You can't do that. Or all the trustees have to know about everything that's going on. And therefore, the, so we don't have to worry about some trustee feeling like, what's going on out there? What, you know, what did what my other trustee do? So I, it's, it's a very nice way to manage your financial affairs. Now, there is an upfront cost of creating the trust. And you have to have successor trustees in place. But frankly, for a lot of people, if you have money, any substantial assets, not in a 401k IRA, not in a rollover, if you have substantial, any kind of substantial assets, and I'll leave that up to the listeners, what the word substantial means, you should talk to a lawyer about whether it might make sense to use revocable trust. Now, I assume you do that for many clients, and many clients, they fit that pattern. Yes, exactly. And and one... And one uh, Additional thing I'd add is that we encourage people when they're getting on in years to name the successor trustee as co-trustee with them um, ahead of time, and that serves a sure. num- number of purposes. The the child who's named as co-trustee gets to know about the parent's finances. Uh, they if the parent can still manage them, and but the other child will have access and will will be able to see if the parent's not paying bills or is. Uh, paying uh, an, an inordinate amount out to uh, for some purpose, and so they can step in if they need to. And then it also makes the process of them stepping in to take over the finances, if that becomes necessary, somewhat easier because they're already all on the accounts. So they don't have to go show that their parent has become incapacitated or has passed away and uh, and. Uh, get themselves recognized by each financial institution because they've already done that. Yeah, the agent. Yeah, there, there's a real problem. Problem when agents being recognized. And here's a classic situation. Uh, you know, my son Corey is my agent. I'm demented. Uh, Corey goes to my local bank and says, "I'd like to access my father's funds. I'm his agent." And they say, "And you, you can imagine you're a, talking a, agent, to a clerk. Un, agent under a durable power of attorney as opposed to under, a trustee." Right. Yeah. And agent under poverty, and the, and the person you're talking to says, I can't handle it. We'll have to get you the vice president. So you mm-hmm. walk across the bank, you sit down at some desk, and you show them the power. And the person says, well, how do I know that your father expects you to be handling his affairs? How do I know he's demented? Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, even if the power doesn't require the person to be demented, the banker or the financial agent or someone may be reluctant to, you know, just to, to, he doesn't know Corey, my yeah. son. He, right. he, may, he probably doesn't even know me. Mm-hmm. So a trust overrides that, as you say, because if, he can, if Corey comes in with a trust document and it says, I am the co-trustee, and my father at this point has, is, is no longer capable of acting, uh, you can now take orders from me, Corey, mm-hmm. uh, as to how we should handle these affairs. And so you're right, it really helps. The other problem with agents under durable powers of attorney is when does that occur? How bad off does the parent have to be before the child can take comfortably step in and start taking care of affairs. Uh, there, you know, you have a lot of problems. I'm sure where the child thinks the parent 
shouldn't be handling their affairs, and the parent feels otherwise. Right. Yeah. And that can cause a lot of family uproar. But in a trust situation, the child can sit down with the parent and say, look, we're both trustees here. I'm a co-treat. Let's talk about why I think what you're doing is not the best thing to do, Dad. Maybe we should try a little different. Or maybe you're spending too much money here. Or what happened to that $10,000? Right. Dad? Right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, and you're right. The need to kind of integrate gradually in a, in a very comfortable way rather than just coming into your parents saying, hey, I'm taking over. Right. And it's not, uh, it's because, because it's not an either or. It can be a both. They can both be right. involved. Exactly. In you can work with the parent. You don't, you don't just say, I'm stepping in here. You move aside, Dad. I'm taking over. You say, Dad, let's sit down together and work on these things and, and to the extent I can be help, I you need my help I'm here and we'll, we'll work together yeah yeah the other issue so, yeah I'm, revocable trusts are really a nice document yeah. to have and the other issue we've run across with powers of attorney uh, you were talking about uh, the problem going to a bank is they have uh, they seem to have something which I call staleness doctrine that if the power of attorney is old they say well it's too old so I'm not going to honor it which is number one contrary to law and number two, um, actually a little um, perverse because presumably if it's an old power of attorney, the parent was totally competent when he or she signed it. But if uh, he or she signed it six weeks ago, who knows? They're less likely to be competent. But the oh, oh yes. But the financial institutions prefer the newer document. Yes. No, that's very true. The, the stale document is, uh, uh, again, no gr- no basis in law, but for some reason, uh, a lot of, well, and maybe it's just human nature. You see a very old document, you say, is this still valid? You know, this was 15 years ago. Yeah. Well, that's, right. But trusts, but trusts, people are used to seeing trusts signed many, many years ago and yeah. still valid. Right. And so they're not going to have the same response to it. But to a 15-year-old trust document, they'll say, nope, not a problem, or they should say not a problem. Yeah. So switching gears a bit, Larry, I, I want to ask you a question about annuities because you, in our prior podcast, you talked about the concept of uh, getting investments uh, um, really in a place where you can kind of leave them and not worry about them. And wouldn't annuities do that as well? Yes and no. Uh, unfortunately, in life, there's always, you know, there's this and then and on one hand, on the other hand, it's, all, right. it's the classic situation. And annuity, of course, is very simple. You go to usually an insurance company, a major insurance company, and one that's going to be around for a long time, you know, a very big company, and you give them, say, you give them, you buy, for, you give them $100,000, let's take a number, and then they agree to pay you income usually for the rest of your life. And, of course, how much income they'll pay you each year based upon you giving them, say, 100000 depends on two factors. One, how long do they expect you to live? So the older you are, the more income they can give you every year because they figure they'll be giving it to you for fewer years. So if you're 70 years old and you're a woman, they look at you and say, you know, you've got 20, 25 years life expectancy mm-hmm. at age 70. But if you're 90, well, obviously your life expectancy is maybe five to four, three to five years. The second variable, how much they'll pay you, is how much they can earn on the $100,000 they give you. Because what they take, they do is they take that $100,000 and they invest it in some manner or way. They may loan money to a, someone who's building a high-rise building, or they may buy bonds, or they may buy stocks. Somehow or another, they invest that 100000 And whatever they estimate they can earn on that 100000 
will affect how much they can pay you. Uh, so the, if they think they're going to earn a lot of money, interest rates are high, things are going well, they can pay a higher annu- uh, annual annuity. But if interest rates are low or they, don't, they, the insurance company, don't think they can earn very much, then they'll pay you less. Whatever. You talk to them, you say, I have 100000 how much you can pay me for life? They'll give you a quote. They'll give you some number. 100000 might be $7,000, $8,000 month a year for life. Okay? Depends mm-hmm. on if you're a man or a woman. If you're, because it depends on if you're doing it for two lives. For example, mm-hmm. a couple can go buy an annuity. And then they keep paying until both of you are dead. Yep. But that's a long, usually a long time because if you have two people, there's a very long uh, married couple. There's a pretty good chance one of them will live to ninety. Interestingly enough, so so a lower okay. lower monthly payment in that case. A lower monthly payment, obviously. Okay, and typically a married couple would not want to just have an annuity that ended at one person's life because that would leave the other person without that income. All right, so but somehow or another, you get a quote, and you go to an insurance company, and they'll give you a number. Now, do you want to do it? Do you want to trade in your 100000 or 500000 whatever it is? They'll take it, a million, and get income for life. Well, the answer is, hmm, it, here's how it works. When you buy an annuity, you are betting you're going to live a long time. Mm-hmm. And the insurance company's betting you won't live as long as you think. <laughs> right. Uh, and if, but if, so if I age 75, I buy an annuity for life and I only live five years, uh, trust me, uh, I will have spent more than I ever got back. Mm-hmm. I'll never recover my $100,000. But if I live to 95 and I buy it when I'm 70, I'm very likely to get a lot more money back than I invested and it will have been a very good decision. Yeah. Well, the insurance company, of course, doesn't really care how long you personally live. They sell these to thousands and thousands of people. And they know on average how long someone who's 70 years old and a male, how long he's going to live. Or they know if a couple buys in company, an annuity and the husband's 72 and the wife's 69, they know how many years one of them until the second one dies. It's all, it's all done by statistics. There are actuaries out there who run crunch the numbers and they can predict you know, how long you're going to live and, and based on the average life expectancy of you uh, they come up with a number well you don't know how long you're going to live right, right. Uh, obviously you don't buy an annuity if you've just gotten stage four cancer uh, that's not sensible but you don't really know how long you're going to live you might depend a little on your genes, how long your mm-hmm. parents lived. Uh, my mother lived to 97, my father till 90. But mm-hmm. of course, I could get run over by a truck tomorrow, or I could get, you know, I could get cancer and die soon. But prob- I might have a pretty good chance of living a long time. Here's my advice if you're thinking about annuity, a, fi- a, ter- a fixed term, a fixed life annuity. Don't put all your eggs in one basket. Mm-hmm. That is, don't put all your money into an annuity. Uh, instead, you might want to say, why don't I take some of my savings and buy an annuity, and now I know for the rest of my life, no matter what else happens, I'll get a check every month. It may not be a lot, but at least I get a check every month. Meanwhile, my other money I can invest and hold back, and, and maybe I can make it grow and spend it down. But if, if, I, if, it's, if for some reason all my other savings are gone because I had to spend all the money, it's sort of like Social Security. No matter how long you live, you'll get your Social Security check, mm-hmm. and you'll get your annuity check. Yeah. 
problem is an inflation. Inflation mm-hmm. is the your enemy. Yeah. Because if you're getting, say, $20,000 a year from an annuity right now, 20000 you say, that's pretty good. That pays for this and that. How much is $20,000 going to pay for 20 years from now? A lot less. We all remember back in the day when you could get a, you know, a gallon of gasoline for 32 cents. <laughs> we you, can even remember you, what the you, dollar You and I remember about. that. Our kids don't. Yeah, you remember the dollar fifty gasoline. <laughs> uh, and... If gas, if if we have any, if we have inflation of say two percent per year, so every year things a loaf of bread costs two percent more on average, a gallon of gasoline costs two percent more a year, new shirt, you know, whatever, all your things average a two percent increase. In ten years, you'll have twenty percent less buying power, and mm-hmm. in twenty years, at two percent per year, twenty years times two percent is forty percent less. Mm-hmm. In other words. It will cost you forty percent more to buy those same things that you, back in the day. So twenty thousand dollars, and that's with no com- compounding, could, right? And so twenty that twenty thousand may seem like in today's dollars it would be the functional equivalent of having fourteen or twelve thousand mm-hmm. dollars. Okay, you have to assume on a fixed uh, annuity that the buying power will gradually shrink over the remaining years of your life. Mm-hmm. Doesn't mean you shouldn't do it, but it's, it's one reason not to put all your money into that because uh, of that problem. Yeah. So it sounds like it could be used uh, for what I've heard called long- longevity protection, that you make sure you don't outlive your money. Right. And also right. To, to make, from what we were talking about before, to make sure you don't uh, miss, uh, misspend or misinvest your money. Exactly. Here's the nice thing about annuity. Okay, you went to the casino this month and you spent all your annuity check on <laughs> on the red and it came up black. Well, next month you get another check. Yeah, and that's pretty. That can be pretty comforting. The people for whom annuities are probably the best bet are single people. If you're single and you don't have a spouse, then the, your life expectancy is not all that long, depending on your life, your years, and you don't have to worry about leaving money to a spouse unless you really need to leave money to your kids or grandchildren or something, or you want to give a lot of money to my favorite charity, uh, you, you can pretty much spend your money. So a lot of single people will devote part of their assets, not all, but part of their assets to an annuity, knowing now that worse comes to worse, they'll always have some money. And they'll, they will accept the fact that this annuity will buy less 15, 20 years from now than it does today. But they'll just accept that. Yeah, that's just part of their what, what they factor now, in. I've been talking about... Fixed annuities, and we don't have time, and I'm not the man to talk about variable annuities. This is an annuity that doesn't pay you a set sum each year, like $20,000 a year. This this annuity, the amount you get varies upon the investment return on the money you gave the insurance company or the annuity company. So your return could be 20000 this year, 23000 next year. 19,000 a year after that, and so forth and so on. Mm-hmm. It can go up, up and down over time. These are very complicated products, these variable annuities. Uh, and I would say for most people, they're probably not a good investment choice, but I, 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 I want to be careful because there's always exceptions. Yeah. But, if, but if I were looking at an variable annuity, I would want to talk to someone other than the person who is selling me the variable mm-hmm. annuity. 
to ask them, is this makes sense? Uh, this is what the guy, I talked to uh, Margaret, my variable annuity saleswoman. She laid out this possibility. It sounds pretty 